welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Welcome, everyone. We are very excited for this program today. My name is Rosie Levine. I'm the Senior Program Officer at the National Committee um, on U.S.-China Relations, and I work mostly on the Public Intellectuals Program. I am delighted to welcome you all to this event, and as you undoubtedly know, the centennial of the Chinese Communist Party, CCP, will be celebrated in China next week. This milestone will be accompanied by media fanfare and celebration as the party promotes its story of success and accomplishments to its people and the world. We are joined here today by three terrific scholars who will help us analyze, interpret, and contextualize this event through the lens of their research areas. I will briefly introduce our three panelists who are all fellows in the Public Intellectuals Program at the committee, and their full bios may be found on the event page for this event, and we'll post a link in the chat here. So Denise Ho is an assistant professor at, of 20th century Chinese history at Yale University. Her research focuses on the social and cultural history of the Mao years. She is also interested in urban history, the study of information and propaganda, and the history of memory. Next, we have Carrie Kosel, an associate professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where she specializes in the study of contemporary Chinese and Russian politics, authoritarianism, religion, and politics. Maria Repnikova is the, an assistant professor of global communications at Georgia State University. She's a scholar of China's political communication, including domestic media, politics, and soft power practices of the Chinese state. We are very excited to engage these three panelists in what is sure to be a fascinating discussion. So to start the program, I will start with one of the pre-submitted questions that I just mentioned. Uh, the first one is from, is from Tim Cheek at the University of British Columbia, who has asked the question, what metaphor or image might you use to capture your sense of the CCP at 100 years? So starting with Denise, then Carrie, then Maria, um, I'd ask each of you to share a metaphor or image to highlight both your research areas and to answer Tim's question. Thank you so much, Tim, for that question, which we thought would be a great way to uh, start off and kick off our conversation. As Rosie mentioned, uh, my interest is in the politics of display in Chinese museums, primarily on the Mao era, but I thought that it would be more relevant to look at a more recent exhibition. Um, and so I chose a few images here uh, from a recent exhibition that I visited in 2000, uh, 2018. Um, and this was in Shenzhen, a temporary exhibition on the achievements of the reform era in Guangdong. Uh, and you can actually, there's a, there's a very glossy um, high-tech website, so you can visit the exhibition virtually, uh, even if, if you can't get to Shenzhen at the moment. Anyway, I'd like to use these the photos here to highlight a few issues and to answer this question of the CCP narrative at 100. Um, first, I think the CCP narrative is one of modernization and economic achievement. And you can see that with the juxtaposition of on the left, bottom left there, Guangdong as a poor agrarian society. And then it ends with the province and especially the city of Shenzhen as a technological capital of the world. So you see in, in the background, the image of the drone. And this technique of juxtaposing past and present is a technique, uh, a legacy of Mao era curatorial practice. Um, so uh, narrative is modernization and development. Second, this transformation is attributed to the leadership of the party. And third and most important, uh, historical narratives are framed by the paramount leader. And here I want to draw your attention to something that uh, might easily be overlooked, but in the 
upper right hand uh, corner of the slide, um, you see the opening section of the exhibition that starts with um, uh, the Mao years, uh, Guangdong and the Mao years. Uh, on the upper right, um, there is actually a quote from Xi Jinping and it's about reform and opening up. So rather than start with Deng Xiaoping, we start, we frame it with, with Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping's understanding of reform and opening up. And the quote um, that is used here talks about reform and opening as the fate of modern China, the motive of the 200 years, Liang Yi Bainian, and then finally the crux of the revival of the Chinese people. And so what I want the main takeaway of this, this collage or these images is, is that this idea of this 200 years, and the 200 readers refers to the anniversary we're discussing today, the 100 years of the party, but it also looks forward to 2049, that is to say the centenary of the establishment of the People's Republic. And so I think there are two central takeaways from this idea of 200 years. First is that the party reflects on the past while also being forward-looking. So any historical exhibition is also forward-looking. Um, and then secondly, that the party is inseparable from the nation is inseparable of the Chinese people and here their revival. So here's an image uh, to, to kind of frame my understanding of the narrative as seen through exhibitions. Thank you so much, Denise. Um, Carrie, next to you. Thank you. Thanks, Denise, um, and for the committee for organizing this panel. Good evening, everyone, and good morning to our friends joining us from Asia. So as my metaphor of thinking about this 100-year anniversary, it's difficult to choose one, but perhaps it would be the party is key, or maybe the Maoist slogan that the party leads it all in the way that Xi Jinping has also embraced this in recent years. And in my own research, I move away from museums and towards schools, a different type of institution, and use this really schools as a window in thinking about how the CCP teaches young people tells them their story and also encourages them to be loyal and supportive. And I focus specifically on political education. And before I jump into Chinese political education, for those of you who are unfamiliar, political education is nothing new and it's not necessarily even Chinese. So philosophers from Plato to Aristotle all spoke about the importance of education in cementing support for those who rule. For the simple idea of what we learn early on in life is assumed to stay with us, to be difficult to displace. So schools are a key arena for building support for the regime. And this is true in democracies and it's true in dictatorships. So in democracies, we think of this as civics of education courses, where students learn about the nuts and bolts of democratic political institutions, the guidelines for awareness and voting behavior. Civics is a guardian of democracy. In non-democracies like China, civic education courses are also integral components, but we tend to call them political education, ideological education, sometimes patriotic education. And it tends to be dismissed in the West as indoctrination or brainwashing. But I would suggest there are some similarities of what takes place in civics and democracies and political education in, in autocracies. So political education sets the building blocks of political knowledge, the skill set for responsible citizenship. It transmits political values in hopes of shaping political behavior. And in the Chinese context, political education is extensive. So it's been in place since the 1950s. Chinese students beginning in primary school are exposed to at least one hour of political education material each week. 
They learn about the flags, symbols of the regime, the capital, the founding of the party, key leaders. And this regiment continues and intensifies through middle school, through high school, onto university level and graduate training as well. So what do students learn? Now, of course, they learn about ideology, Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, Xi Jinping thought. They also learn about Chinese political institutions like the National People's Congress, various laws and policies. They learn about economics and current political events. And political education courses are intended to stimulate support for the Chinese leaders, for the party, for institutions of the state, respect the party, admire the party, follow the rule of law. And so we can think about political education in China as not only training revolutionary successors, but also creating stakeholders in the regime and stakeholders across multiple generations. So of course, the party plays an oversized role in political education materials in textbooks. And I want to share with you some of the research on a book that I'm writing about political education in China. Now, the materials that I, I'm going to share with you draw on what is called the National College Entrance Exam, more commonly called the Gaokao. Um, this is a nationwide exam offered every summer. It was just offered earlier this month in June. It spans two days and covers a variety of subjects. We can kind of think of it as the ACT or SAT, but it is much more formidable. For the Chinese students who prepare for this exam, this is a high stakes examination that tests a variety of subjects. Mathematics, Chinese, foreign language, geography, a variety of sciences, and of course, politics. This exam is important. It is the gatekeeper of higher education in China. And the politics section is very important for my research in because it reveals how the party teaches young people, the story that it tells. And it allows us to see how this story has changed, how it has shifted and sharpened over time and what themes have staying power. So what I wanna share with you in the next few slides is one of the key themes, the party is key. Now this first question is from 1951, one of the earliest examinations. And here you have the party as a revolutionary party, leading the revolution, leading the masses. By the 1980s, the slogan without the leadership of the current party, there would be no, and here this question is about the four modernizations, but you could fill in the blank to many other aspects of, of Chinese politics. In 1997, the theme, the party is key in constructing a socialist, socialist spiritual civilization. So the party is key is a dominant narrative, but the party is also invincible advanced and powerful. A question from 2000 describes the party as always being invincible from 2001 as advanced and leading China's advanced cultural progress. 2013, the party as playing a powerful role in building a socialist and culturally powerful China. So advanced, invincible, powerful, but it is not just these wonderful characteristics. This is perhaps my favorite question in all of my research coming from a question from 2011 on the exam where the party describes itself as selfless, dedicated and brilliant. With their selfless dedication, the Chinese communists have been committed, loyal and dedicated to China's national revival. The brilliant achievements of the party. And here it's not necessarily the correct answer which I think is important, but how the party is describing itself as a uniting force, one that is leading the people. And this leadership is not just domestic, 
but it is also global. The final question I want to share with you is from a 2018 examination, which talks about the Beijing Initiative. So for those of you unfamiliar with this, this was a, a symposium that brought together party political parties from around the world, uh, 300 different political parties from 120 countries coming together in Beijing to talk about building a global community with a shared future for humankind. So this Beijing initiative, this message of the party as a global leader, the party leading this new international or this new global order is certainly one that it wants to transmit to Chinese youth. So what these questions reveal is a sophisticated narrative of the party. The party is key. And this is the message, the underlying message that it wants to transmit to young people. We move from the 1950s of, of a revolutionary party to one that is extremely effective in governing and governing in all areas, one that is leading domestically and now that want one that is leading globally. The party is the custodian of values the bringer of progress and development, the protector of social order and stability. So the underlying message across different decades is the party is also selfless, brilliant, and most importantly, invincible. This positive and powerful message is taught to Chinese youth with the overarching goal to sort of transmit these political values, but to reinforce the longevity of the Communist Party. And I'm going to hand it over now to my colleague, Maria. Hi, everyone. It's wonderful to see um, fellow panelists, but also to speak to all the participants across Asia and the US and other parts of the world. So my research is on China's political communication, including domestic media politics, and more recently, also looking at external communication with a special focus on China's soft power initiatives in Africa, including via Confucius Institute's um, official trainings, uh, educational exchanges, as well as media. So I'm, I've expanded my research quite a bit um, to go beyond media into other channels. I'm interested in how communication practices play into the legitimacy of the party state domestically and internationally. And the key theme that I want to start off with here, which is only just one of the tactics and themes that I'm going to discuss um, during today's event, captured in my slide is the continuing importance of or relevance of external actors in legitimating the party's rule both domestically and internationally. Edgar Snow, an American journalist who wrote one of the most famous accounts of Mao's China for global audiences, is still considered to be the archetype um, foreign correspondent in contemporary China. On March 7th of this year, Hua Chongyin, the foreign ministry spokesperson tweeted, China hopes to see and welcomes um, more Edgar Snows of this new era among foreign journalists. Well, unfortunately, no Edgar Snow figure has emerged in the contemporary period, but the delegation or persuasion of, or propaganda through foreign actors has expanded and diversified. On the image on the right here, you see a prime illustration of this effort, a recent tour of Xinjiang by delegation of African officials. These tours have taken place regularly over recent years and also including delegations by members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and many other BRI countries and partners. These visits whereby officials partake in cultural rituals are televised and widely reported in both international and domestic outlets. A recent Chinese article I found covering the African visit quoted one of the officials as saying that Xinjiang is a good place, how Difang. The mediums of external legitimation have evolved and the external participa participants have diversified, but the idea of the reliance on international voices to uphold the legitimacy of the party has remained. So I want to start with that. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to our three panelists for kicking us off with a really helpful, um, not only introduction to their research areas, um, which 
you know, of, of, are of great interest to all of us, but also how much they impact um, the current conversation on um, kind of how the CCP not only crafts its narrative, but communicates it with its audiences and abroad. And so kind of diving into the, the moderated discussion, um, what exactly, we're, we're here at the uh, one week away from the, um, you know, this very big momentous occasion, um, Denise mentioned in her presentation that the 100, um, that this marker of 100, the 200s are really kind of key moments that the Communist Party is using to kind of um, establish its, its goal points and check-ins check on its, in its progress. What is the official narrative around this um, anniversary? And Maria, could you tell us a little bit about what the official media has been um, promoting around this event? Sure. Well, the official promotion um, is in part also quite secretive. So we're seeing a lot of reports that there's quite a bit of preparation going on, but it's very guarded and barricaded. So we don't quite know yet what the stage is going to actually look like. But we're also seeing some very similar, I think, promotion tactics to the ones observed in previous years. For example, the focus on individual heroes, like there's going to be an award ceremony for outstanding party members. And also the merging of individuals and society as part of the celebration. I was particularly taken by the mass weddings ceremony that's going to take place apparently as part of this celebration, this notion that we can celebrate your individual um, kind of um, family units alongside with that of the party. And I think that also speaks to the larger narratives that I've observed in propaganda that's that's evolved kind of under Xi Jinping through official media, but also online channels, whereby Xi himself has been portrayed as kind of this family man. He's in charge of the country, but he's also an approachable, a warm kind of family character and a lot more coverage of his travels and the ability to follow his travels to various apps and tech devices to clap alongside him at meetings to see you know the outfits worn by his wife to see how he meets foreign delegates all of that is a huge shift from how party leaders have been covered previously so i think this notion of kind of merging the family units with the party unit uh, it's his, it's a historic theme but we're seeing it i think celebrated in much more um, maybe extensive and stark ways um, in recent years and in this anniversary. We're also seeing the mergers of kind of popular culture with um, official culture. So for example, patriotic rap is something that's already being prepared with a hundred rappers are going to sing along a particular song. I haven't had a chance to listen to yet, unfortunately, but I look forward to it. Uh, but this again is a trend that's been ongoing. We see kind of a cooptation of popular culture by official channels, whereby in order to survive in that system that's becoming increasingly restrained and entertainment channels have been really cracked down upon in recent years, not only political channels, but also popular entertainment ones. It means also playing up to the party and providing content that in some ways has at least some glimmer of patriotism. So I think that's another kind of theme that resonates with, with the past. Um, and this notion of focusing on linear history of the party, kind of overcoming adversaries towards, you know, this, again, victory, success, brilliance, like Kerry described, this kind of unimaginably strong future. And that to me also resonates with how the party promotes itself to international visitors. So I was looking at training materials presented to African elites, journalists, but also various party members and ministry officials. And when you look at those training materials, you also see this kind of very linear uh, explanation of history, very simplistic, but also quite you know clear, clear, clear in terms of just overcoming the, the harshest uh, times and becoming at the helm of not just China and kind of legitimacy in China, but also of the world. It's kind of this idea of China really guiding, but not in a way that the United States is doing kind of through hegemony as it's portrayed, but in a way that's much more balanced and inclusive of various voices that's really contributing to harmony and especially helping develop other you know, developing countries in global south where China presents itself as being on par with them as opposed to being kind of the leader or in some way superior. So all these different things that I'm observing in preparation of the anniversary, I think resonate with the trends that I've also looked at uh, as part of external and internal propaganda. Great, well, um, you mentioned the rap songs. Um, the next question is how these, um, 
narratives and propaganda kind of um, mechanisms are evolving over time. I think, uh, I don't know if anyone in 1921 would have imagined a rap song as part of the celebration. Um, Denise, how do you see these um, evolutions happening um, in, in your work? Thanks for that question. Um, it's, uh, it's really interesting to think about uh, exhibitions over time in the same way that Carrie presented those questions over time to see some of the continuities uh, in, in these various forms of propaganda or various forms of propaganda media. Um, I think a couple of shifts come to mind. Um, one of them, um, Maria mentioned this idea of a kind of a linear trajectory. I think one thing that is new is, or one thing that is different is a, an acknowledgement of uh, what might have in the past been referred to as leftist mistakes or challenges. Um, but the, the, the emphasis of the narrative is on the way, ways in which the party overcame. Um, these um, perhaps slight uh, digressions from that, that linear trajectory. And so I think that since, uh, since the Mao years, there has been uh, an economic and political success story to tell um, that that is the latter half is, is, um, is promoted. Um, another thing that's different, if we think back at the images that I showed you at the beginning, is that the, um, the poverty of the Mao years is acknowledged. So during the Mao years, for example, during political campaigns, individuals were asked to compare the past, and then the past was the pre-liberation past. So how did people suffer in the past uh, compared with the present post liberation and the happiness of, 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 of liberation. And I think now, if you think about that exhibition of the reform years, it's okay to exhibit or okay to reflect on the, um, the um, less developed state of, of China emerging from the Maoist years because the transformation that's happened since then has been so revolutionary. Great. Um very interesting. And you mentioned how these narratives are changing and evolving over time. Carrie, I know you've seen, you mentioned some of this in your Gaokao questions. And um, actually, a question in the chat has come in very similar to that, but from Morton Holbrook, which is how um, kind of the verdict on Mao and the Cultural Revolution and other serious mistakes are treated today in the media and Gaokao. Um, so either on that or on, on other evolutions you've seen in the Gaokao, how are you seeing this in your work? Thanks, it's a, a terrific question. So on the Gaokao question, Mao plays a prominent role um, in the 1950s and through the 1960s, is mentioned in multiple questions before the examination was put on hold during the Cultural Revolution. There is less critical analysis on the examination of Mao as an individual, as a leader, and even as his policies. So this, I don't think this is the arena necessarily to have an open discussion about Mao. Um, in fact, Mao is continues to be invoked through the 1980s and the 1990s, and even under the leadership of Xi Jinping. So Mao has this lasting staying power on the examination over time, in spite of the many flawed policies under his management or, or, or oversight. And I think that is just, it's too hard on this examination to have a critical discussion of Mao. The students are taught one narrative about Mao and there's continuity um, over time. Anything else you want to add there, Maria, about um, how you see this in your work at, in the media? 
Yeah, there are two themes that I wanted to briefly highlight. One is the more pragmatic storytelling. Um, I think over time, that's something that I've observed in my research, uh, this kind of focus on accomplishments, primarily economic ones, in trainings of elite journalists and officials from developing countries, but also in the media uh, kind of exposure you know, globally. So mostly focusing kind of economic achievements and you don't see as much of this very harsh ideological language coming out in these reports or training materials, but you see it more like in journalist trainings domestically. So there's kind of a drift there between domestic and external, but even domestic Domestically, I think the content has really adjusted quite a bit, become more playful using, you know, various social media techniques, gaming and so forth, delegation of persuasion to actual netizens to share content, to comment, uh, much less harsh, kind of softer and more subtle. I think that's something that um, I'm observing in both my external uh, persuasion and internal persuasion work, but also I think more confident storytelling, especially post-pandemic, that's something worth highlighting that I've written about in several op-eds, as well as this China coming out as kind of this leader in pandemic response, this sort of narrative, and China is also being trade is more effective than the US. I think this contrast with the US is somewhat new to me. In previous years, when I would ask about coverage of other countries in China, journalists would say it's actually very sensitive. And for the most part, they try to present a very balanced uh, image of the United States. But in recent years, especially the past year, we see a lot more critical, directly critical coverage, not only uh, in media, but also by Chinese officials themselves on Twitter. Um, so one of the questions that came from one of the participants that I looked um, at was, was about Fan Wannan, this artist whose futuristic work portrays China as this kind of superpower alongside with fading United States. I think that's, that's really an example of that coming not only from the party, but also from the bottom up, again, from the artists who are then being elevated by state media channels. So this combination, I think, of pragmatism and confidence to me are two important themes to highlight as part, as part of the media narratives. If I could just add um, to build on what both Maria and Denise have said about the accomplishments, but a, a confident narrative that is emerging. You absolutely see this in political education and, and, and on the Gaokao. And the accomplishments are not necessarily sort of economic growth and prosperity. It's elimination of poverty, but it's also the space program. It's it's confidence in sports about the number of uh, gold medals won at various Olympics or the, the outstanding swimmers, uh, Chinese swimmers. So this this really important narrative of building confidence in, in multiple arenas, not just ideological confidence or economic confidence, but sports, space, and culture, drawing on traditional Chinese culture as something to be incredibly proud of and to be celebrated, that this is again being woven in to political education, which was not the case um, under the Maoist era for sure. Very interesting transition. Is this something you've seen in your work as well, Denise? Um, I'm sorry, I wanted to, can I, uh, sure. before answering that, can I add, um, uh, Jan asked if we could uh, go back, circle back to the, uh, to more Holbrook's question about Deng and how he's portrayed these days compared to Mao and Xi. I think Deng is still part of the narrative, um, uh, still there in the lineup of the, of the leadership of China. Um, but analysts who have looked at the short history of the CCP have noted uh, ways in which that narrative, that short history of the CCP has changed. And a, a couple of things that they have noticed is the ways in which uh, some of the quotes that were, the Dung quotes have been alighted. And one of them has been um, the one where uh, in discussing the transition of power, um, he said that we should not rely on the, the strength of one individual. So that has, that has been, um, has uh, dropped out of the short history of the CCP, as well as the uh, statement about how uh, China should hide its light and, and kind of bide its time. Um, so I think that 
indicates that we've we've moved from uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics to socialism with Chinese characteristics in a new era, very clearly marking that we are in this new era. And that question about what has been lost um, or what is dropped off of the narrative um, comes to a question that was also submitted um, in advance of the program by Lawrence Sullivan of Adelphi University. Um, he asks which aspects of the party, um, which aspects and party leaders of CCP history will be left out or whitewashed in the celebration. So bringing that question, I think you already set up a lot of these key key parts, Denise, but bringing that up to the um, celebration coming up next week, um, is there anything that you think is going to be kind of uh, left on the cutting room floor as the celebration progresses um, next week? Um, thank you for that question. So it, it came up in the pre-submitted questions and I also see it in the in the Q&A about tough issues like the Great Leap Forward famine, the Cultural Revolution in 1989. Um, I think that um, these, it's not as if such events have dropped out of CCP history. Um, they're cer certainly there. I think some of the, uh, I, I think that some of the portions in the short history of the CCP are, are shorter or less detailed. Um, so, uh, you know, while I, I think that while we acknowledge that, I also think that it's important to recognize that a centenary celebration um, as a national celebration is not one, is not necessarily the place and time to have this kind of historical reckoning. Um, and so in the same way that Carrie said that patriotic education is not unique to China, and we have civics education uh, in the United States, I think that um, while it's while it's meaningful and useful to recognize some of these elisions or absences, um, that that this the purpose of a centenary celebration is something very different. That is a very very important point to to make. Um, anything, Maria or Carrie, you want to add here? Okay. Um, so going back to the the question of tactics and approach, I think it's a really interesting um, kind of area. I know that um, we were just kind of talking about that a minute ago, but going back to this question of how exactly these um, messages are being shared, um, I think it's an interesting question, one that has evolved over time. And, um, you know, as Denise and, and Maria and uh, Carrie have mentioned, has evolved with the kind of demands, I think, in the needs of the party. Um, how have you seen this, Carrie, in your work, um, especially around schools and education, which is an area that has changed quite a lot in the past, um, past few decades? It's a great question, Rosie. So schools and you know, edu the educational in um, is an important institution, the key institution. I mean, if you think about it, the students are a captive audience. They have to be there. Their parents are going to send them there. And with the National College entrance exam, they're going to be tested on the material that they have absorbed and learned as a student. In, and the highest scores are going to go on to the best universities in China. And so unlike other mediums like museums, I may go there for entertainment and leisure, the media, I may or may not read the paper or watch television. Education is something the state controls. It deeply controls and it can control it from K through 12 and, and into to universities. So it makes this this really essential tool for transmitting political knowledge, sharing the worldview of the state, and it allows it to fine tune it on the Gaokao exams every year, it can ask specific questions, but also more generally in the textbooks and the knowledge that it is sharing with students. Great. And we, I mean, Denise has raised this point, but I, the legitimization is a very key part of any kind of celebration like this. This is about um, 
you know, creating an image of the party that that they want to promote and they will promote, um, you know, very actively around the celebration. But in the way in which, um, I guess this is not new to this kind of anniversary. Um, we've talked about the power of narratives, but also the power of words. So one enduring slogan is without the communist party, there would be no new China. In what ways do the narratives that each of you analyze um, kind of serve to legitimize party rule and how do you see that playing out in the in the areas you, you research? Um, so first, first back to you, Carrie. Great, thanks, uh, thanks Rosie. So the narrative, um, that I wanna focus on is actually the narrative of democracy. This comes up, I see Javier has a question about can democracy ever go grow out of the Chinese Communist Party? And from their perspective in political education, it's already there. It's been present since the 1950s. So political education, the materials, embraces the language of democracy, but they talk about it as a socialist democracy, which is much more representative and much more responsive than democracy outside of, of the Chinese context. Western democracy, what we have in the US is described as capitalist democracy, sometimes extreme democracy. It's seen as corrupt, fostering inequality, disenfranchising minorities um, and the poor, and therefore socialist Democracy is this powerful alternative. It works, it delivers, it's responsible. And I think this narrative of taking the language of democracy and making part of it of the narrative of the party is an important one. And it's a really powerful one. For instance, if you're trying to diminish demand from young people of looking to Western countries and then imagining what it would be like to vote for your political leaders and what better way to do that is to say, well, we already have democracy at home and it's an effective form of democracy and it's suitable to our domestic and our cultural context. So you diminish demand essentially for outside forms of democracy by saying we're already supplying that and it's flourished. So by embracing the language of democracy and co-opting it, it works towards the state in multiple ways. Great, um, very interesting points, Carrie. And, um, Denise and Maria, do you want to chime in here as well? Sure. So this question of how do narratives, the narratives that we study serve to legitimize party rule. Um, so just to, go, to give a concrete example and return to the, to the particular narrative, this narrative of reform and opening up in Guangdong um, as a concrete example, I think one thing that I was really struck by when I walked into that exhibition is that the first couple of um, after the entrance room, the second room, was all about people fleeing to Hong Kong in the Mao years. So you actually had the passes that people had the, living in the border on display, and then also reports of people fleeing to Hong Kong, including charts with numbers, um, which surprised me because it's not something that you would have seen in a previous era. Because in a previous era, I think that kind of artifact would have been, um, would, would have lent, legitimacy to an alternate narrative. That is to say that people were fleeing um, because of discontent with the regime. But the fact that these things could be on display, I think shows the position that China is in now. And if you go to the very end of the exhibition, one of the last, one, maybe the penultimate room or the, one of the uh, maybe third to last rooms is actually an exhibition, a display of the Greater Bay Area. Um, so now this the narrative is that the power has redounded to the Chinese side um, and the story of Hong Kong has has entered the story of the Greater Bay Area. So I think that that anecdote can let us see how exhibitions have transformed um, 
to the present and also how this story of something that was potentially a negative story before has now been turned to a positive narrative because of the of China's historic trajectory. Uh, yeah, I guess a couple of uh, points that resonated also from this discussion. I mean, first of all, Kerry's point on democracy, socialist democracy, it also very much was part of my analysis of training materials. Uh, I guess not surprisingly, their similar themes resonate, but at the very heart of kind of political content about China was really that this, this very much more competent democratic system. And, you know, we often hear about this narrative of China exporting authoritarianism and kind of becoming this, I don't know, leader of the authoritarian world order in Washington is kind of a very prominent um, theme these days. But in reality, like the actual word authoritarian or even socialism doesn't come up as much um, in ideological terms. It's really democracy that comes up quite a bit. Uh, and the focus on consultative elements, representation, the input channels, the fact that public opinion is being tracked and listened to and represented, like that to me was really striking that how much emphasis was placed on some of these um, sort of mechanisms of uh, governance. Um, and the very idea of meritocracy often being compared to the lack of meritocracy, say in the United States, where one can sort of buy into an election or money matters and you can kind of become instantly famous, something that cannot happen in China where officials have to rotate through all these various positions in order to come to power. So that's highlighted through many, many slides and presentations. And that's something that also many participants take away that they're quite surprised by learning how many different channels for participation exist. And even though they're cynical and often question to what extent is it really democratic, they do come away thinking, well, this is interesting because I've never heard of this before because the Western media narrative is very much the opposite. So they come back and try to reconcile this idea of China as an autocracy, but also China is this kind of representative democratic system in its own right and having its own path and this idea of kind of self-reliance and um, the idea of not depending on any other model and creating your own is something that's also being shared with other countries that you don't have to copy us, but you can also find your own path towards something that works for you. Um, I think that's a quite a powerful message that many officials take away from this um, from these visits. But a second point I also wanted to kind of uh, um, point out here is that when it comes to media and communicating messages to broader, you know, mass publics, uh, it's much harder, like Carrie said, to convince people to listen and to tune in. One can easily ignore many of these messages. So in this current era, also the party faces a much more distracted public that can easily just tune out many of these messages, which kind of, I guess, we'll discuss further in terms of effects. But I think that's something important to note that the party has to work much harder um, to kind of adjust uh, and become more creative in its messaging techniques. And internationally, it also means telling a lot of stories to local actors, like local journalists getting hired to work for Chinese state media who are very talented and often poached from you know, local outlets to tell a story in a different light or to be more creative in its messaging. So there's a lot of investment happening in terms of kind of sharpening these tools. And a, I think a very clear realization that maybe in some ways it needs to do much more because it's not clear you know, how effective it is at capturing audiences either domestically or globally. Great, and I think with that, I'm turning to a question directly about effectiveness is just how effective are these messages? I know this is something that is hard to quantify, but um, you know, we've seen, we've talked about the tactics, we've talked about the approach, we've talked about the, the message, but is it working? Um, so um, Carrie, I see you nodding along. Do you wanna take this one first? That's a tough question. Um, I think there's different ways we could answer it. Number one is, does the regime think it's working? And at least for my research, they are heavily investing in political or patriotic and ideological education. They take it really seriously. Um, you know, after, after June 4th in 1989, one of the public comments Deng Xiaoping made was, was about political and ideological education. And the point was that 
that the party hadn't done enough to teach students, to teach the public more generally about what China was like before the party came to power and what China can become in the future. And so we see this being very important at a pivotal moment in Chinese politics, but we also see political education being invested um, in Hong Kong right now. And here they're reframing it, not as political education, but as national security education. So political education is coming to K through 12 and even university level classrooms all across Hong Kong, but what that will look like is, is, is still uh, an open question. So the point is, is that the government takes it very seriously. They, this is a long-term game that they're playing an investment strategy, an insurance policy, so to speak. From the student's perspective, um, I think there's a bit more skepticism. So interviews with students and survey research with students finds that the political education courses are not terribly popular. These are not the favorite classes. Uh, when I interview students about the Gaokao exam, uh, the politics section, they have some PTSD um, experiences with this. Um, but there is also some evidence that patriotism and support for the party is resonating and as well as skepticism of Western democracy. So potentially it could be creating diffuse support. But the challenge for, for all of us as scholars is to disentangle the impact of political education because it's not operating in a vacuum. It is exposed to, to museums for as Denise's re research teaches us, but also Maria's as well. The media, the students are, young people are being hit at multiple angles, not just schools, but the movies, um, as many of the, the folks in the chat are, are, are mentioning different CCP themed movies, rap songs. So it, they're getting hit at multiple levels. But at the end of the day, I guess the bottom line is the regime invests in it. They believe that it works. Great. And Denise, um, do you see this at play in, in the museum exhibitions you look at as well? Thanks for that question. Um, the, the question of reception is the hard, is one of the hardest ones to answer, especially for people who study the kind of history of cultural production. How do you, 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 can, you can do a lot of research on how something was put together, a piece of artwork, an opera, but how do you actually understand um, the audience, especially an audience in the past? Um, I think there's there are two points that I wanted to make, um, and one is about the public aspect of attending an exhibition. Um, so in the course of the research for my first book, I asked someone, um, you know, what's different about what was different about going to an exhibition or how is exhibition different from other propaganda? And one answer that really stuck with me is uh, someone said something like, um, you know, when you go to an exhibition, you do so in a group, um, you're with other people and you, you can see how uh, you respond in a certain way and you see how other people respond. Um, you have to look at it something together. Um, it's not like being at home and reading a book or reading a, a comic strip or something um, uh, privately. So it's, it's, a public, uh, it's a public thing um, and there's a ritual aspect to it. Um, so exhibitions, uh, and especially exhibitions about party history, about um, uh, red tourist sites, patriotic education sites, um, it's it's not always obvious to um, a, an outside visitor, but these are physical sites to demonstrate loyalty. So you don't see it in the slide that I presented to you, but in that same exhibition, there is one of the exhibition rooms is actually empty in the center, um, but it has the CCP flag on the wall and it has the CCP oath on the wall. Um, so when party members visit this the exhibition in a group, they stand in the room, literally surrounded by historical narrative, you know, before going into that room and after, um, and they verbally affirm their loyalty to the party. So even if we can't always measure the resonance of a 
particular type of um, a narrative or a particular type of propaganda message. We do know that rituals are powerful and especially public rituals create a sense of affinity and a sense of community. So I think that that's the primary point I wanted to, to make. Um, but secondarily, I think it's important to have a clear eyed view of propaganda and to um, I think that as as scholars or as China watchers or uh, you know, people who are interested in China, we're often interested in the counter narrative. Um, we're interested in the exception or someone who disagrees with the narrative. Um, but uh, Kirk Denton in his book about the exhibition in post-socialist China, he said that we fail to understand China in all of its fullness if we don't take seriously uh, the, the propaganda message. And that most for most of the people, um, there is a truth to this propaganda message. And I think, as I was saying earlier, um, the ways in which China has achieved wealth and power, it has become rich and strong. Uh, the, the people's, for many people, their lived experience and their, their reality reflects this propaganda message. And so it rings doubly true. And, and I think we should always keep that in mind when we're trying to understand uh, propaganda messaging, uh, publicity information. That's a very good point, Denise, and very helpful um, to keep in mind from this conversation. Um, shifting from those who are within the system and have the, you know, the propaganda resonates in a certain way, um, Maria, to ask you, kind of weaving a few questions in together, one from um, Susan Finder in the chat and one from Clayton Doobie from USC in advance of the program. Um, Clayton asks, um, in which areas or which audiences the party of state improved its storytelling? Um, clearly its narratives are not playing in many places, including the US, but there are, um, are there topics and targets where it is succeeding and why? So looking a little bit outside of China um, and broadening the aperture, where do you see these um, narratives either landing or, or not in China's overseas media outreach? Yeah, thank you so much for this uh, for this question. It's similar to domestic audience studies, very hard to capture the reception towards Chinese um, content and messaging externally as well. And I'm going to kind of uh, explain a little bit more why. But I think to start this kind of answer, just a few weeks ago, you know, Xi Jinping has made a quite a um, surprising speech in some ways, he advocated for a portrayal of a more lovable image of China, kind of hinting that uh, some slight desperation at winning public support overseas, this idea that we have to kind of tweak our messaging that maybe in some ways it's not working as perfectly. Of course, there's a lot of overinterpretation of that speech. One could say maybe that's just his way of saying something that doesn't mean as he doesn't have as deep of a connotation, but the idea that there's something that has to be kind of slightly shifting. Some interpreters are kind of critical wolf warrior diplomacy is not working uh, or something that needs to be a little softer, more engaging. But in short, I mean, we don't have a lot of evidence, empirical evidence to suggest that um, Chinese state media efforts externally are very effective um, across the world, not only in the kind of developing world, but also in the global south, where there are not that many studies, but the ones that exist and have been done by various scholars, survey studies, interviews, focus groups suggest that there's quite a bit of suspicion and also um, concern of credibility with credibility of Chinese state media sources um, in Latin America and Africa, a study by Wasserman with over 100 journalists surveyed in South Africa, for instance, found that they didn't, didn't perceive Chinese state media sources as credible as Western sources. Um, in my research in Ethiopia, I find that there's quite a dis distinction between elites versus general public. So the elites officials find that some of Chinese messaging in state media is quite helpful or because it's very positive of also how Ethiopia is doing. They're celebrating its development. They're celebrating China-Africa friendship. But general public is not aware of Chinese media at all. If you ask uh, any sort of average citizen on the street or if you look at what's being projected on screens at gyms or hotels or in various public spaces, you just don't see Chinese media there. You see Turkish soap operas, you see CNN, uh, you see local media, but Chinese media is not really read. And even the inserts of China Daily, the kind of China Watch insert that's been widely talked about, 
not is often ignored. It's just kind of being, you know, sort of washed over, looked over, but not really read. So I think there's, that's kind of gets at some of the crux of the difficulty of studying the reception, because on the one hand, a Chinese state often studies it by looking at how, how much you know, it's expanding in scale. So how much is it being kind of, um, is propagating its message? How much is its media being kind of present physically? But is it really being read and absorbed? That's something that Chinese state media apparatus is not studying. And what evidence we have so far suggests that the reception is very mixed, even in contexts where China is very actively competing for media space and also actively investing in various economic um, spheres. Great. Um, and I'm just going to ask one more question, even though I really want to turn to the wonderful questions coming into the chat. So while I ask this last question, I will use this time to call, um, put an open call to the audience. We already have um, a number of wonderful questions coming in, but if you have anything on your mind, please feel free to put it in the chat and we can address it directly. Um, but just one last question um, from, from my side, um, another pre-submitted question from Ian Johnson, um, a correspondent now based in Singapore. But um, do you estimate that the, parody, the party's narrative is less or more credible um, than 10 or 20 years ago? Do people tune it out? Do they resonate? I know this gets to the effectiveness question and it's very hard to quantify, but in the, the fields that you look at, um, do you feel that the um, effectiveness or the, the change over time is creating a more successful um, party narrative? Um, I'll start with you, Morgan Maria, and then um, if Carrie and Denise want to jump in, you feel free to. Um, sure, yeah, I wanted to kind of highlight that it depends really on the types of narratives, like certain, I think, messages maybe are working better than others, and the more subtle persuasion in the case of the media is, I think, it's it's more effective. Again, it's very hard to give numbers, but in my view, uh, it's perhaps more, more influential. For example, persuasion is fused with more critical or investigative coverage has been more popular than, say, just outright kind of positive messaging. And we see this over time, even though a lot of investigative journalism is sort of dying out in China, other outlets like Peng Pai in Shanghai have replaced some of the outlets like Nam Fang more in the South. So we see some of these kind of little tiny outlets or spaces like Taisin that end up reporting in, a, I think, more persuasive, more credible way, but still in a very positive way. So it's, it's not outright critique. And I've analyzed this for you know many years in my previous work. And there's quite a lot of legitimation of the party in those uh, reports as well, that the central government is attentive to public concerns, that it's going to fix the issues. And yet there's also critique and investigation that uh, makes it appear as much more like a real news source, not just a propaganda outlet. I think the more playful content that doesn't overtly promote political views, like some of the kind of uh, official WeChat accounts that don't even have the names of the official media that they're affiliated with, but have a lot of playful, you know, imagery, uh, stories, helpful kind of educational content. I think those are also have, you know, have received a lot of um, hits uh, online and content that emphasizes national struggle and individual accomplishments. Post pandemic, we see a lot of focus on individual heroes, nurses, uh, medical practitioners, delivery workers, all kinds of personnel that, you know, was really highlighted in those reports. I was really struck that so much of the content was not about the party per se, but really about those individuals. And that was a big hit also in terms of commentaries that they received on social media. So I think the more subtle, the more creative the content, the more likely it is to get um, resonance um, on social media, at least, but also in mainstream media. Very interesting point. Um, Denise, do you have something to chime in here? Sure. Um, I think that my first answer would be to say that the narrative has become more credible as it mirrors or as it tracks with um, kind of China's China's own rise. Um, but maybe this is an opportunity for me to reflect on the ways in which museum practices changed. If you look at um, museum journals, let's say from the 1980s, there was this, this concern with, um, let's say, revolutionary history sites or revolutionary history museums and how to make themselves relevant to a, a 
population that was suddenly um, able to travel, um, who were looking for entertainment or leisure. And so we've seen this museum boom in China over the last 10, uh, 10 or 15 years where you you have more sophistication, you have, you know, high tech, even if you go to a, a, a very, uh, not a um, not a major city, sometimes you have very technologically sophisticated, very expensive museums. Um, and so I think you've, you see in, in some ways you see this proliferation of a narrative, but I think the important thing to remember is that um, the party controls the narrative, even in private museums. So let's say five, 10 years ago, we, we saw the glimmering of some um, private museums that were starting to display the history of the recent past. Um, but as I write in my book, some of the, the ways in which they tried to push the envelope um, have, have since changed. Um, and so the, the proliferation of, when we think about the proliferation of museums in China, I think we need to be attentive to the content um, and what kinds of uh, non-official or private museums are the most, um, most effective. Great, and Carrie, any last words before we um, turn to the audience Q&A, which I do have to clarify, I said to put it in the chat and I've got a note that I said that incorrectly, it should be the Q&A box. So if you can hit the, um, to add a question, please click the Q&A button to submit there. As for it becoming, it, it resonating more, um, I think political education has become, as my colleagues say, more sophisticated over time and more subtle over time, more nuanced. It's not necessarily hitting students over the head with ideological dogma, but it's portraying accomplishments of the party in, in, much, in much more subtle ways which is more effective. I think it's easier to in, in, internalize rather than be, being hit over the head with dogma. And it also, you could see political education allowing an opportunity for self-correction and self-reflection in some ways. Just as Denise had said that you see this taking place in museums, you display the history of the past, the poverty of the past, and how that has been now over, overcome. So you tell the story sort of full circle, focusing on where China is today, and also suggesting a very positive trajectory of where China may be going. So I, in that sense, I think the party is, is delivering in political education or propaganda. But I also wonder if, if, if China is reaching a saturation point. And, and what I mean by this is there is such overexposure of, of propaganda, of political education, whether it's in museums, whether it is in schools, whether it's in the media, um, you know, we hear stories of, of communist cells now in, being encouraged to set up within private firms. So the reach of the state is, is becoming extensive. And if we look to um, other longstanding communist regimes like the Soviet Union, you know, some of the research on, on the late stages of socialism, um, Yurchak's book, which is what I'm thinking about, he talks in, in one of his chapters about political education and the Komsomol and the saturation of, of political slogans across society. And he essentially describes them as, as blending into the landscape. They're everywhere, and so therefore they become less meaningful. And, and I wonder if China is, is reaching that point. I mean, perhaps this is not the best month to be talking about the saturation of, of the party's accomplishments, but 
because there is such an overexposure of these master narratives in all dimensions of, of life, I'm wondering if they become less meaningful, that they don't take hold and therefore they blend into the landscape. And I think that is actually a really dangerous point um, for the agents, the propaganda agents of the states. And perhaps they, if they were thinking of being more successful, they could walk that back um, just a little bit. The fact that we have you know, a rap industry developing around political education, not only films and, and, and museums. I mean, this is this is an extensive reach. Great, um, really interesting points. And um, I now feel very lucky to turn it over to the chat where, where very um, smart and thoughtful people have submitted great questions for us. And I um, fear we're not gonna be able to get to all of them, but I'll start with one from another PIP fellow, uh, Hui Nan, who is, um, I'm just gonna read exactly what she wrote because she um, asked this question, I think much better than I could phrase it. but. Um, she said, I would like to know how effective the narrative of confidence of the party has been in shaping um, the mind of the Chinese people, since the average Chinese today might perceive a yawning gap between the achievements of the country, sports, space, economy, et cetera, and the difficulty of their personal life, long working hours, stagnant family incomes, challenges in receiving um, decent, affordable healthcare and education. To what extent are the public receptive to the party propaganda? And I think that picks up exactly on the points you were just making, Carrie. So, um, it's a really interesting contrast and, and one I don't know if um, who wants to, to take first, but I think one that um, we can try to peel apart. Denise, go ahead. Sure, so the, the, the larger question about um, kind of, is, is there a, do, do people experience a sense of cognitive dissonance when they um, confront a uh, propaganda message about uh, the achievements of the, of the party or achievements of the state and their own personal message is, is a really intriguing one. Um, I, um, I remember, I, I don't know if how many people on the, uh, in the, on the call or in the, the participants in the, in the audience um, have a chance to visit the China Pavilion um, at the Shanghai Expo almost 10 years ago now, um, there was, when you, when you went up the elevator and you stepped out, they had these little dioramas of a Chinese family's household starting from 1978. And the first one was, you know, the, the thermos and the wicker basket and the, the glass top table. And then each decade, there was a little, a, a different room until the final room was actually this very luxurious living room with, um, you know, vases and, modernist furniture and and I, I I would look at people who were taking taking photographs and kind of exclaiming their um, seeing the familiarity in these in these shared spaces um, but then wondering when they got to that last space that was supposed to depict the present how many people had living rooms like that um, and so I, I I also wonder about that do they do I think the success of the of the propaganda is uh, lies in the ways in which uh, people don't have that dissonance that they don't that they either um, see the achievements of the state as as their own achievements um, to be able to participate in that achievement or the other option is that this will be their achievement in the future that there is a promise held out in the propaganda that there that there's going to be a way to participate in in that later um i think that uh maybe maybe one way to think about this is to reflect on um Martin White's book, uh, The Myth of the Social Volcano, um, this idea that uh, one would think that people would be uh, discontent with income inequality and uh, the, the, the results of this multi-year survey um, showed that people were actually less content, discontent with rising in inequality um, and less discontent with inequality um, 
as compared to, let's say, Eastern European countries or other countries emerging from socialism. So I think this is one of the paradoxes. Um, and and they, the answer to the myth of the social volcano was that people were comparing their present life with their past life, where there was this equaling down. Um, and so the, the question for uh, another way to think about this question is how long does that myth persist? It's a great question. Um, Maria or Carrie, do you want to chime in on this one as well? Two quick points. Thanks, Inan, for the really terrific question. So in, in terms of the strategy, I at least I observe of the narrative of confidence, one of the ways that we see it emerging in political education is to juxtapose the confidence or the success that the party is delivering within China's borders compared to other countries. And so there's, there's a strong emphasis on, you know, China and the party weathering the Asian financial crisis or the 2009 global financial crisis, while the rest of the the world, particularly the Western world, was falling apart, the party held it together. So this idea that the party is holding it together and serving the state. But I think your point about this disconnect with their own individual's personal experience and their daily life, just as, as what Denise mentioned in, in just a moment ago, I think is a really important one. And when we think about the party as serving the, serving the people, serving the masses, it also is still a pretty elite group. So the 92 million members, I think going strong is still only about 7% of the population. So this is a tiny slice of the broader population. And so you have to wonder about the disconnect of what the party is suggesting it's delivering in really beautiful ways. And then the reality of what people who may not, may not be party members of what they are experiencing. And this may cause some resentment um, to the party, so long as it remains this very elite, you know, seven percenters. That's a great point. Um, switching notes a little bit, another question came in from another pit fellow, Pierre Landry, um, who asked about the comparative um, look to the Soviet Union in the late 70s. And Carrie, you touched a little bit of this on your previous answer, but we're lucky to have um, two scholars here who look at, um, at Soviet and, and Russian politics. So hopefully we can get a little bit of nuance here. But in what ways, Pierre asks, um, in what ways does the CCP strategy compare to the Soviets um, approach in the, in the 70s? Are they equally ineffective, he asks. Um, how, and you've mentioned, um, we all, you know, each scholar has, uh, panelist has mentioned here that these are not new approaches. Um, political education is not new. Um, creation of narratives is not new. How does China's approach um, compare to the Soviet example or, um, you know, how, how is it uh, uh, similar and how is it different, I guess? Um, Maria, do you want to start with this one? Sure. I, I haven't looked as closely at Soviet's um, external propaganda in the 70s, but overall, I think there are some similarities and some, I think, differences between the two sort of experiences and tactics. I mean, in terms of similarities, I think this idea of relationship building and youth exchanges and trainings and just the idea of immersing all these um, individuals and groups into local culture and uh, through all this educational means, I think that's in very ways on mass scale. I think that's very similar in some ways to what China is doing today. And ironically, when I was visiting a Russian cultural center in Ethiopia, which used to be a Soviet cultural center, the director who served for many, many years in Africa, including in the Soviet era, kind of compared what China is doing today to the Soviet um, example. He said, well, they're doing what we used to do. They kind of copied everything except on a much larger, even larger scale. They have more money, more means, and they're just doing it more successfully. So he said that with kind of a bit of bitterness, it's kind of like here, here they are just sort of mimicking us, but we can't compete at this point. So Russia is far behind the contemporary era from China. So I think there is some kind of, I think, echoing of um, Soviet approach, but I think there are also important 
important differences. I mean, one is that China is also extremely uh, powerful on economic frontier beyond just kind of culture, so-called soft power, it's just the investments and the presence of Chinese companies and a lot of material kind of, you could call them gifts or some would, you know, kind of negatively describe them as bribes or debt, you know, depending on which terms we use, they're much more present uh, beyond just kind of the cultural elements. So that means that also the benefits you can gain from China, but also the cost of this engagement are also much higher. So just for example, when we look at Confucius Institutes, um, say in comparison to the Russian Cultural Center, Soviet Cultural Center, it's not just about learning Chinese language and culture for the most part, it's about getting a job at a Chinese enterprise once you graduate. So in my research, I find that the main attraction, the main enticement is really the material one. It's about working, being a translator, being a facilitator for a Chinese firm that pays two to three times more than a job of a professor at a local university. So that's kind of this kind of material, I think embedded, embeddedness of kind of soft power, this fusion of material and cultural, I think it's, it's a little bit, um, quite a bit distinct from the Soviet practice, which focused more on culture, uh, politics, ideology, as opposed to say the material gains of engaging with the Soviet culture, Soviet Union. Great, and Carrie, um, I know this is something you've looked at quite a bit. So any, any thoughts for us here? So I think there's actually some really striking parallels between uh, the Soviet, um, what they call patriotic education over time and what the comparisons with China. So um, in, the, so in the 1970s, and actually I have a book right here on, you can see this is The Ideological Struggle and Youth. This is a textbook um, from the 1970s that I was working on today, that the focus here is really on ideology. And one of the big differences between the Soviets in the 70s and even in the 80s under perestroika um, and glasnost is that the Soviets didn't adapt and innovate. They didn't fine tune political education or ideological education the way that the Chinese are doing. And so perhaps the Chinese are learning from the stagnation of the Soviet model of political education. Um, but at the same time, there's also some parallels. So they both highlight accomplishments, whether they're cultural accomplishments, sports and space. These are three kind of arenas that the Soviets talked about and we see also appearing in Chinese political education. Um, the Soviets spent a lot more time in their political education materials talking about military training. And, and so some, many of the textbooks have detailed guidelines of, you know, how to take apart a Kalashnikov and put it back together, how to disarm a tank, um, how to dig trenches. So really, there's a, a strong dimension on military preparedness, which we don't see to the same extent, uh, even to a large extent within Chinese um, political education. And so the Chinese have, have proven to be much more, I would say, adaptive um, and innovative over time. They've also focused on the economy in the way that the Soviets never did. And perhaps it's because they didn't have the economic accomplishments or the achievements that you know, China's economic engine is, is able to, to play up those really powerful points. That's a great point and very, very helpful to keep in mind. Um, anything to add here, Denise? Um, or if not, I can, uh, there's a, a number of questions for you specifically. So um, one of the questions that came in um, that I will address to you or was addressed to you um, is about uh, private museums. You mentioned those in your presentation about how um, private museums are kind of playing into these national narratives. Um, can you um, dive a little bit deeper into that point and how, um, the kind of the the coalescing, I guess, of the private and and national narrative. Um, is can you is it referring to a, a specific question in the Q and A, or is it a number of questions combined? Um, I can pull up the specific question in one second. So there has been a huge private museum boom in, in China, as some of it has to do with um, 
private collectors of, let's say, contemporary art. Um, that, that would be one category. There are also people who um, have a particular passion, like uh, industrial design, for example, opening their own museum. Um, I, I believe there was a question in the Q&A about the Jianchuan Museum cluster. Um, I think that what's important to remember in the case of um, the private museum is a private museum still exists um, with the permission of the state. Um, that is to say that they need to be conscious of the um, what, what is in their exhibition and whether it accords with um, official propaganda um, as well. And I think that there is, um, I mean, maybe five, uh, eight years ago, uh, there was more of an attempt to uh, do what uh, a a uh, co-author and I described as guerrilla exhibits, like, you know, you would have a um, official uh, narrative or official exhibit um, in the private museum, and then there might be a case with something that was, was interesting or perhaps um, departed from the official narrative or brought up some questions. Um, but I think that those have, um, have, have, since, uh, have since been changed or things that don't accord with the official narrative um, are no longer present. Um, yes, thank you. That was um, that was Clay Duby's question about um, the the fun uh, Jinchuan near cluster near Chengdu. So you answered it perfectly, despite my not being able to find the question on time. Um, so we only have about a five minutes left. So just um, to kind of wrap up and to hear from each of you before we close, um, looking ahead, um, this is combining a few questions, one that came in from Stephen O'Young in um, in advance, and one that came in from Harriet Mandel in the um, in the chat. Um, using Stephen's language here, um, what are the CCP's projections for China in 2049? And I guess more generally, just looking ahead into the 50, 100 years in the timeline before they reach their you know, second um, hundred that they're trying to, to reach, um, how do you see these uh, dynamics playing out into the future in each of the sectors that you look at? So um, Denise, starting with you if we can, and then uh, Carrie and Maria. I'm sorry, can you come back to me? I'm still thinking about uh, the, the previous question. Sure, no problem. Um, Cherry, do you want to go ahead? Certainly. Uh, it's a tough question of thinking of where the party wants to see itself. So certainly a positive linear trajectory in power, resilient, strong, communist. Now I, I put that in quotes. What that means, I think, is you know, with with Chinese characteristics, which gives the party a lot of flexibility. But the the narrative, I don't imagine it it transforming dramatically, that it is still the party that serves the people, that supports the people, responds to the people, that creates and cultivates a strong and prosperous China. And, and that is, I think, where the party would like, like to see it, and certainly a hegemonic party. I can't imagine um, them welcoming uh, competition um, within their landscape. Um, Maria, anything to add there? Yeah, I guess I also envision a pretty linear messaging in terms of narratives. I don't, I don't imagine it transforming radically unless maybe China becomes the number one power in terms of just complete supremacy, tech supremacy. Maybe that message is going to be even more confident, uh, so less subtle in terms of kind of being, you know, helpful to other countries or just kind of being one of the powers, but being the power. So maybe that's going to transform in, I don't know, 50, 100 years. That's a very long time. So it's I, I wouldn't say that's impossible. But as far as kind of the more specifics of 
how it ends up communicating its message. I think we're going to see a lot more um, kind of aggressive moves to buy out, you know, local media outlets around the world and kind of to really invest heavily directly into kind of storytelling that's done by other actors. So less of just Chinese state media telling the story, but more kind of putting the Chinese media label on various outlets that already exist. I think that's going to be a lot more powerful, especially amongst diaspora groups. And I think also we'll see a lot more fusion of kind of communication infrastructure with actual messaging. So for example, a lot more engagement in providing access to digital TV, to 5G, to all sorts of basically means and modes of communication, and fusing that with the messaging that China, again, is generous, powerful, and so forth. So I think the, the narrative, the message is going to also come hand in hand in parallel with kind of this um, the infrastructure that enables communication is going to mostly come from China in the global south. I think that's going to be a huge transformation. It's already happening. And how that changes people's minds or views on China is going to be really interesting to observe. Great. And final words from you, Denise. So I, th I think I would agree with, with Carrie and Maria that we have a narrative with, I think it's a, a persistence of an intensification of a narrative. So if the 20th century Chinese dream was the search for wealth and power, um, I think it's going to be a continued story of, of wealth and power or strength. And then I guess the corollary to both is a story of influence or a narrative of influence. And, and thinking back on um, the Carrie's final slide, the final question about the CCP as global. Um, and then of course, Maria's, Maria's research, I think that the, it, it will be um, one in which the PP, CCP's story of legitimacy is linked to all three of those things, to economic growth, to nationalism, to having international prestige. And I think, um, we have already seen um, China's ability to uh, to influence the narrative of um, uh, its traveling exhibitions, for example, or its uh, when it lends artifacts or objects to a, to a museum to be able to to sh to shape those those narratives um, has been has been part of uh, China's museum diplomacy um, for the last ten years or more. Great. Um, well, we'll have to get you guys back for the 2049 anniversary um, <laughs> to do part two here. Um, I wish we had more time. We had um, so many wonderful questions coming in through the Q&A and uh, couldn't even begin to scratch the surface of interesting um, angles and dimensions of this significant anniversary. And I know uh, we'll all um, have a lot to think about as that unfolds next week. Um, so, but with that, we've already, um, we've used up our time and I want to, on behalf of myself and my colleagues at the National Committee, extend a huge thanks to the three of you for your very insightful comments and helpful um, frameworks to help interpret what's gonna be happening um, in the anniversary and um, to share your research and work with all of us. So Denise, Carrie, and Maria, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And to all of you who've signed on uh, tonight, um, nighttime, Eastern time, um, morning and, and afternoon for a lot of others, we're very grateful for your time and wanna thank you so much for coming and for asking so many great questions. And uh, lastly, a plea um, and a request that if you've enjoyed this program that you not only sign up for others, but um, if you've enjoyed it or have any feedback that you please submit it to us, we'll be sending a survey um, feedback form um, shortly after this program. And we really appreciate um, any comments or feedback you might have. So. Um, thank you with, um, to all the speakers once again and to the audience. And um, with that, we will um, let everyone get back to your, your days or your evenings. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.